I like playing good music. From Threadbare Studios in hot and steamy New York City, welcome to Cue the Music, the podcast of queer musicians chatting with queer musicians. We are your hosts, Katie and Shia, joined today by Lydia Paulos. Welcome. (laughs) Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Um, I am a cellist. I'm a freelance cellist, I guess. Um, I like to refer to myself as an irregularly employed musician. I just graduated from NYU, from the music program there, so I'm kind of free-floating right now, um, trying to pay my rent and see what comes my way for good music. Would you say that you like performing music that is for a purpose or is um, politically inclined in a way? Like you're saying something politically. I mean, definitely, yes, I do enjoy that. I don't think it's something that I want to, like, I don't only want to play stuff that is politically relevant or whatever. It's, I like good music. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, you know, as much as I do love the new music scene and the theater scene and I'm in a band and I love folk music, there's a lot that I like, but I also... I mean, my degree is in classical performance, and I like classical performance. I'm a sucker for, like, a romantic-era opera. Like, you know, runs the gamut of what I what I like. While we're on this NYU kick, there's, <laughs> I am not an NYU alum or Better affiliate off, in Better any way. <laughs> but um, David Elliott, who's a professor of music pedagogy and education at NYU has this idea that he writes about and speaks about called artistic citizenry and basically being an artistic citizen is the opposite of absolute music and that an absolute musician is just performing music to perform the music whereas an artistic citizen is performing the music for a purpose and when I came across this idea, it really changed a lot of how I think about music. Like, it was something I'd thought about prior to, but hadn't been consciously thinking of. So off of Shia's question about what kind of music you like to perform, do you have any thoughts on sort of your purpose as a musician? Um. Wow, that's like a scary question. <laughs> um, I You're mean, welcome. it's right now. I guess gigs that I am taking are things that pay because I do. You gotta you know, pay rent. Yeah, being a freelance musician, <laughs> like I, I gotta pay my rent. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think for me, like playing or being a performer, um, my goal is to connect with the people that I'm performing with on stage and the people that I'm performing for. I think what I love about music just in general is that it has this ability to connect to other people and kind of tap into emotion that, at least to me, I don't think like written or spoken word can really get at. Like it's things that are too big or too specific that words can't exactly explain or describe or communicate. And I, I definitely think that some music that is very, like, intentionally political or intentionally, like, the composer had something in mind when they were writing it that is p- 
pushing boundaries or whatever beyond just the music, that's amazing and I love it. But I also think that some of the more classical, traditional composers were able to tap into that emotion and maybe it's not political. And I think that's still okay. I think it can connect on an emotional level. That's that's important to me. And that's why I kind of get into that stuff. Why did you get into music? And why do you keep doing music? You know, I don't really know. There was never like one moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be a musician. I picked up, let's see, I picked up the piano when I was about seven um, and the cello when I was like nine. And it was just like one of the things I did for a long time. Um, I ended up dropping piano when I was in middle school in favor of playing soccer. And um, I guess I stuck with cello and then really toward like in high school, I guess, is when I I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't have like one reason that I was like, wow, I'm doing this for this one reason. It was just kind of like I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Why do you think it is important to promote the works of female composers or women composers? There aren't really a lot of women that are getting produced. Um, um, you don't say. As composers. I know, <laughs> Wait, like, what? breaking news. Right, this just in. But I think it's important to support that because there, I mean, it feels kind of like a no-brainer to me, but, you know, there is there is so much music out there that is being composed by and for women that just isn't getting performed at a lot of the bigger venues and people just don't know about it. And so it's exciting to me. And it's, I, you know, it's a perspective that I can identify with. There are a lot of things that, like, when you look at some of the old white dudes who are dead and their music is famous, you know, like, great, cool, you know, broader emotions of love or hate or anger or whatever is there. It's in the music. But there's also a lot that when you look at their stories, I, I'm like, I can't relate to this. So there's like um, Jana Czech, the Czech composer. His, what is it? His Intimate Letters uh, Quartet is, he he was like in love with this younger woman who had absolutely no feelings back. And he was, he was like much older. Like he would write her these letters of like, my dearest and, you know, addressed Creepy. very affectionately. And she would respond with like, maestro. <laughs> which is so cold. That can be kind of kinky, yo. Yeah, like that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I just have a feeling like it wasn't daddy, quite her. Yeah. I mean, she was married, I think. And I don't, you know, I, I don't pretend to be a historian or anything. But, um, you know, there's a lot that it's like when it's playing that music, I'm like, okay, cool. But like, you're an old white dude who was in love with a younger woman who didn't love you back. And that's not like, that's such a specific story that I can't relate to. It's and a totally different think... kind of love than, mm-hmm. say, a woman loving another woman, right. and it's reciprocal. Yeah. Like, they sure, consent. they're both dealing with, like, <laughs> love, but they're completely different love stories. Yeah. And I also I... like consent. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's important. Um, yeah, so I just think, I think female composers have a perspective on life and on music that we don't really get to see too often. Um and so I like I like promoting that. And it's the same with um, I'm really I love theater, musical theater and also plays and whatever. Um, and it's a similar issue that's happening in the theater world. There are not really a lot of female composers working again, you know, like really shocker. But um, <laughs> so that's something I also like to to promote, I guess. What sort of work do you do in theater? Are you involved in theater? Um, I do mainly like playing in a pit orchestra. That's about all I can do as a cellist. Sure. <laughs> um, 
but I, I like to see theater a lot too. What's your experience in that world as a queer musician? Oh, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> walking, I, I mean, I've lost count of the number of times that I have walked into a rehearsal for a show or a cabaret or whatever it is that I've walked in and I am the only, not just the only queer person in the room, but I'm the only not, I'm the only woman in the room. I'm, and that's, like, I feel like I can't even talk about being the only queer person in the room because we're still at the basic level of, like, oh, the only people in this space are, like, cis straight white dudes. Like, that's it. That's that's it. And so I remember one time I did this, like, workshop or reading or something of some original musical, and they they were so proud of themselves because, like, the cast was all women and the creative team was all women except for the music director and the entirety of the band minus me. And it's like, it's so it's, I think it's something that people are starting to recognize higher up. So cast people on stage, obviously, because they're so visible and creative team because they're so involved and also visible. Their names are on marquees and stuff. But when it gets to the band, it's like, no, no. I think about this a lot. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are when looking at queer and non-man representation in music, I see that there's a lot of queer voices in pop music, in singer-songwriter music, in DIY punk music. Those are all scenes that are, relatively speaking, pretty amicable to queer voices and women. And if we're kind of rating and ranking these, I would put orchestral classical music at the tail end. The very bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah like the <laughs> least hospitable to women and queer people. Strong and agree. anyone yeah. who's not in that old boys club. So why do it? I do it to change that. You know, that's what I want. I want to, prom- as we were saying earlier, you know, to promote these works. Um, I'm pretty sure that the Met Opera has, at this point, produced more works by one s- singular living male composer than they have ever works by any women ever like that's i think that's where we're at i mean i could be wrong on that <laughs> statistic oh, yeah. but... they've played they did akaya sariaho opera like two or three years ago and she's the first woman they've done in like a couple of decades i mean it's like it's baffling they're doing like the entirety of wagner's ring cycle this season but but oh my god a work by a woman that's just Crazy. Inconceivable, you know? And then you know how many women are on the New York Phil's oh, composer not many. list this year? <laughs> We've yeah, got what, like Julia Wolf? I don't even think she's on there. Last I checked, there was, oh, I it was like I don't, I don't know, I haven't all men on. That's, I mean, I, it's funny. I, work, I actually work um, as an usher at Lincoln Center at David Geffen Hall. So I do get to see most of the New York Phil performances. And yeah, it's all the, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough world. Because it's this is a question I think about a lot. It's like, why even do this? It's such an uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, the I th- I th- in the classical and I guess specifically orchestral world because that's what I'm familiar with. I think it's not just a matter of like gender or sexuality or whatever. It's it's kind of all of it mixed up in one. Um, there's this huge issue of class with it. I mean, it's classical music and there's this huge, um, there's this huge gap between like, 
they, they're trying to sell tickets to these people who are wealthier and older and all white. And that they think that that's where their only income is coming. And so they're like, we have to program a season for this audience, even though that audience is quite literally dying out. Like the audience won't exist to, much longer. Exactly. Right. And I, you know, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I guess it would have been about two years ago now. Um, I worked this concert at the Phil and it was a piece, I believe it was by John Adams. Um, it was like Scheherazade 2.0 or something. And it was like this new work and it was gorgeous. It was violin soloist. And it was not, it was not Beethoven, you know? And it was really funny to work that concert a couple different times because there would be moments when the music would very, get, it would get very quiet and then it would be very loud again and very sudden. And like every time that happened, like one or two more like old white people from the orchestra section would get up and walk out in the middle of the performance. But then when we got to the end, the applause for the people who were still there, you know, the younger audience that was up in the tiers and in the back of the orchestra and the cheaper seats, they loved it. You know, they were so into it. Um, and so that's, it's it's just it's a tough situation. So where do you think we as the vanguards of this new generation are as far as converting this audience and what what do we do to ensure that our craft carries on? I mean, we're not doing so hot right now. <laughs> Orchestras are dying, but um there are some cool programs out there and I think it lives in people our age people younger like kids that are playing or even not playing but you know and maybe they won't become professional musicians but if they have this in their brains and in their ears at a younger age then they're going to come see it when they're older and they're going to be into that and if we can break down those barriers younger then I think that'll help I guess um there's this really cool program in New York that I just kind of discovered. It's called Face the Music. And they do, they're dedicated to um, working with, I believe it's high school kids, is the demographic, high school kids in the New York area. And they put together concerts that are entirely living composers. And I haven't, I mean, I haven't dug through a lot of their old seasons, but I think they do a pretty good job of, um, of, being very aware of like we're gonna hire women and I don't I don't think being queer comes into it so much because you know we're again we're at doesn't. that base level <laughs> right. it's like, we're it's like step one guys <laughs> baby steps um <laughs> but that's a really a really cool program that I wish existed outside of just like you know the little bubble of New York right so stuff like that is I think helps and is important and there are people of every minority demographic are involved in classical Western art music in some way, shape, or form. Like, there's something in this music that is universal. So why is it so dominated by one type of person when it's clearly not at its core meant to be that? Like, yes, it does stem from western europe so that is going to lead it to being like a very white aristocratic sort of endeavor but as it's become like a more global art form orchestral music presents itself in every culture so what what needs to be done to lower these barriers for everyone else 
I mean, I don't expect an answer from that, but this is just like... <laughs> yeah, it's this like is a, a big, thing. complicated problem. Yeah, this is a thing I think about. Like, obviously, there are people of this demographic and this demographic who are writing, performing, curating, critiquing this sort of music. But, like, why aren't their voices heard more? Um, I think it also comes down to the audience, because I think the audience that is seeing these works, like, it's the stigma that if you aren't of that type of what the current audience is, then you're not allowed in, you know? Working at the Phil, it's like the people that come in are, they're all pretty well-dressed, you know? And there's, but there's this huge stigma that like, okay, there are so many rules. Like you can't clap between movements. You can't have your phone out, which is a new modern problem that we have. But, you know, there's like all sorts of things that it's like, we, I just want, I just want it to like, to not, I just, I just want to have a cool classical concert where like, you can sit and have a beer and be in jeans and sit on your phone as long as it's in silent and pay. like yeah like there's nothing to watch that doesn't bother me as a performer people think that it's so disrespectful i'm like no no no. clap between movements i yeah. love it some of these movements Engage are exciting with me. yeah sit on your phone like instagram that shit like oh i'm into it you know yeah totally so that's tough um I like silently cheer every time I, I when I'm at the fill and I see someone who walks in. I'm like, oh, you're young, you're hip. Sometimes I see queer couples and I'm just like, oh, this is this is what I want. This is what I want. And then there is something really fun to kind of play with those antiquated expectations. Yes. Like, it's really nice to go to the Met and like get super dressed up. Like, how often right. do we get I, to wear like, I a ball gown? I personally love wearing straight up just like fancy everything. Yeah. But I also don't, I think that it's an expectation and that you aren't allowed in if you don't dress up. Tell us about the music you're going to play. Um, so it's a, it's a piece for solo cello and a little bit of voice by Caroline Shaw, who I mentioned earlier. She's a living composer. She won the Pulitzer a couple years ago. Yeah, and this piece is called In Manus to Us, which is, uh, I think it was written in like 2009. Why did you choose that piece? I wanted something that was obviously solo cello. So much of what I do is ensemble work, um, which I love, and I love playing with other people on stage, but um, there's most of what's written for solo cello is like Bach. And I love Bach, but also like, that's not me as a person. It's been performed. Right. It's a dead white guy. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to play something that I genuinely just love to play. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And on that, we will cue the music.
Cue the Music is produced by Katie Bishop and Shia Cardona, with mixing and engineering help from Tom Lee and Justin Tricarico, and show music composed by Katie Bishop. This show is recorded at Threadbare Music in beautiful Long Island City in Queens, New York. You can find Shia online at patriciacardonaflute.wordpress.com and on Instagram at queerflota2018. Katie can be found at thequeercomposer.com and on Instagram at femkatie. And be sure to check out Threadbare Music at threadbaremusic.com and on Instagram at threadbaremusicnyc. You can find Lydia Palos at palosc15 on Twitter and Instagram. And that's it for Q the Music. See you next time.